Come on with it. Hey, y'all, this is Trigger Ticky. Thank you for joining me. I really appreciate your being here. Or as we say down here in the gracious South, appreciate you. Appreciate you. All right, let me ask you. When you were a little kid, were you afraid of the dark? I know a lot of us were. I certainly was. My parents kept one of those little night lights in my room, a little thing that plugged into a wall socket and had the same kind of small bulb that we put on our Christmas tree. I tried, and sometimes I convinced myself that this little light would ward off the ghosts, the evil phantoms, the monsters that lived in the closet or under my bed. I imagine that this sort of childhood fear is more the rule than the exception. Children of every era tend to be afraid of the dark. I know a young couple who use construction paper to disguise cans of Lysol spray, and they tell their little children that it's monster repellent, and they spray the hell out of the kids' bedrooms with this stuff and and tell them that as long as they can smell the aroma, no monster will dare come near. Some would say that we grow out of these childhood fears, but do we? As we grow older, I suppose we do become a little more rational, less likely to believe that an axe-wielding clown might slide from under our bed and hack us apart. But don't you think that there's a sense in which we become attached to those irrational fears we held in childhood? A sense in which we never fully let go of them, we sort of transform and transfer them. When I was an adolescent, there was an odd man in the community, a bachelor in his late 40s or early 50s. He wore his graying hair unusually long, swept back and greased down, falling in ringlets down his back. He drove an old 1949 Chrysler and could be seen riding along the window roll down, and he was always clenching a cigar at the side of his mouth. For this reason, he became known as Cigar, or as we pronounced it, Seagar. Seagar had bulbous eyes, and the way his teeth clenched his cigar left him with what looked like a sinister grin. We would see him driving hither and yon in his old Chrysler, and we kids would run screaming in terror. Seagar, we were told, was a molester. We didn't know the word pedophile in those days, but he was thought to be that. He had been arrested. He had been thrown in jail. He had been caught in the most sordid of circumstances. But somehow, he always got away, only to come back and ride around looking like a monster in an old Chrysler. Everybody knew about Seagar, and everybody ran in terror when they saw him. A few years ago, I was suddenly reminded of Seagar when I saw on the road a vintage Chrysler with an antique license plate. It was a different color, but it was the same model as Seagar's. Seeing it, I started to wonder, what really was the truth about Seagar? If he had actually been as perverse and evil as we all thought, if he had been 
caught in the act so many times, why was he allowed to roam free in the community? This prompted me to go to my high school alumni Facebook page and wonder aloud about Seagar. I wrote, was this man really the ogre, the monster, the evil phantom we all thought he was? Or could he have been our Boo Radley? That is, the guy all of the kids run from, but who turns out to be a peculiar but kind soul. Well, from the response, you would have thought that I had condemned baseball, apple pie, mother, and Jesus. Old classmates wrote to me, You must not remember. What's wrong with your memory? I was told, and then reminded of all the things Seagar had done. Well, where is the evidence? I wrote back. Then I got responses that would make the Urban Legends Hall of Fame. Well, so-and-so's next-door neighbor's second cousin said that Seagar did such-and-such to her. But no one presented any substantial evidence. What most struck me was that many of my old classmates seemed to take offense at my suggestion that Seagar could have been innocent. They had embraced a fear of him when they were kids, and now, half a century later, they didn't meet, need me trying to pry those fears away from them. Who knows? Maybe Seagar was guilty. But lacking evidence, can we not agree that a man is innocent until proven guilty? Apparently not. In his 1933 inaugural address, President Franklin Roosevelt famously said, We have nothing to fear but fear itself. Perhaps a more accurate statement would be, We have nothing to fear but the loss of our fears. That statement occurred to me after the Berlin Wall came down and the Soviet Union fell apart. For nearly half a century, the USSR had been our monster, our evil phantom. And now there was a kind of panic. Who are we supposed to fear now? What are we supposed to do with this gaping hole in ourselves where we carried that fear for so long? Of course, it didn't take us very long to find new objects to put into that gaping hole. A few years ago, a group of friends invited me to go with them to the Alabama Theater to see a showing of the 1925 silent movie, The Phantom of the Opera, starring Lon Chaney as The Phantom. As the movie was shown, a live organist played the Alabama Theater's mighty Wurlitzer organ, reflecting the actions and moods shown on the screen. I had entered the theater with a half-hearted, jaded attitude. But ten minutes in, I found myself gripped by the experience. The most poignant part of the movie comes at the end. The phantom, who is madly in love with the beautiful Christine, has kidnapped her and is running away with her in a horse-drawn buggy. They're being chased by a rageful mob, And Christine jumps from the buggy. It wrecks, and the phantom is left to run alone from the mob that is pressing in on him. He runs until he reaches the edge of the river Seine. And now the mob has him trapped with the river behind him. 
In a most dramatic moment, the phantom reaches with his right hand into his cloak and draws out his bald fist. Then with his left hand, he points to his fist and flashes a sinister smile. The mob freezes, fearful of what he's got in his hand. He thrusts the ball fist toward one side of the mob. They rear back in fear. He then turns and thrusts it toward the rest of the mob. They, too, rear back. Then the phantom's sinister smile turns into one of amusement as he opens his fist to reveal that in it is nothing. The crowd then falls upon him, beats him to death, and hurls his body into the river. I walked away from the Alabama theater that night wondering how many of the things we fear are like the phantom's fist. Our imaginations fill the empty space in that fist with all sorts of wild and dangerous things. But are they real? Don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting we should fear nothing. There are certainly things that should warrant our fear. Rattlesnakes, grizzly bears, angry people with guns, the Wi-Fi crashing. But when I consider the objects of our fears, I can't help but wonder how many of them are really real. Hmm, I don't know. Once again, thank you all for being here. Hey, listen, before I go, let me share a health tip that I read this week with you. This might help you out. Did you know, by substituting green tea for your morning coffee, you can reduce by 87% what little joy you have left in your life. Be kind to one another, be excellent to one another, and y'all come on with it.